Oh, let's read the passage together. Ecclesiastes 11, 4 through 6. Can you read this with me, please? Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb. So you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and evening let your hands not be idled, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Father, we ask your blessings to be upon the word of God today as we continue to think about your garden in all of its facets. Um, bless your word today. May your Holy Spirit have freedom to work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, please. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> <clears throat> the church at Corinth was one of Paul's prized churches, not because it was such a great church, but because there simply was a church there. It was a miracle. It was a crossroad of corruption and a crossroad of immorality and a crossroad of idolatry. All of those things met together in Corinth. So it was a, a major hub of industry, a major hub of travel, and because of that, you had all of those ingredients for a pretty debauched society. That was Corinth. Secondly, it was amazing that the church even survived given the difficulties that it had internally. So you had external problems because of the culture and the pressures that it put on the church, but within the church, you had all of these issues, all of these um, conflicts, all of this misunderstanding, all of this abuse, all of that was going in and on in the body of Christ. But it did in fact exist. And Paul would send this church actually four letters, two of which we have. I want to talk to you about the importance of that right up front. I just want you to listen to the categories that Paul addresses in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul spoke of the issue of ministry. He spoke of church discipline. He spoke of lawsuits between believers. He spoke of sexual immorality. He spoke of marriage and divorce and separation and singleness. He spoke of financial giving, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, Christian liberty issues, judgment issues, heaven, hell, the resurrection of Jesus, and the future resurrection of those who follow him. It was, and still to this day, are two very important letters. There's so much in there about the, what it means to be a follower of Christ and what we believe. It was a church that had a lot of questions. In fact, half of 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing questions that they submitted to him. What do we do about this? What do we do about this? We don't know. Because when Paul's writing, guess what they don't have, church? They don't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, but they don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. None of that stuff had been written down yet. This was as you go. 
So there was probably a few Gospels written. Mark's probably was written because it's the earliest. Galatians was probably written at this time. You've had a few letters that had been circulated, but none that somebody could go to and say, what is the the manual for living out the Christ-centered life? They didn't have that. And so as 21st century Christians, we look at the, 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 the people in Corinth, and we are a little bit judgmental. I would say maybe cut them a little slack. Because if you didn't have the scriptures and you didn't have a church family you went to every Sunday and a Sunday school and you didn't have all the literature that's out there about being a follower of Jesus, you'd be fumbling around trying to figure it out too. And you'd be bringing in all of the junk that you had before you came a Christian, which never happens today. It's a very appropriate letter to read. Actually, both of them are. It was a church, quite frankly, and in Paul's words today, that just needed to grow up. It needed to grow up into Christ Jesus. It was a church who needed to know how God did things and how it ought to view itself in contrast to what God does. And so we're going to see a little gardening imagery as Paul tries to help that church understand those two things. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, verses 1 and 2 as we begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still what, church? Still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Sounds like Adam and Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, doesn't it? They're not mature enough to receive the deeper things of God. Indeed, you still are not ready. That's sort of a little bit of the condemnation that goes with that. The NIV chose to use the word worldly in that passage. Some of you who have the King James translation will find the word carnal in that space. But the word is actually fleshly. And I actually like that word better because it does contrast the spirit. If you're operating here, for those of you who've been in my Wednesday night teachings for the last two years... I describe the way that God has created us as three gears. You have the top gear, which is the spirit. You have the next gear, which is the mind, the emotions. Uh, We call this in, in a tripart theology, the soul. So the spirit, the soul, and the last one you have down here is the what? The body or the flesh. When God brings us into this world because of Adam, There's something that happens, if you can imagine those three things. This top gear is separated. It's there, but it's not running. This is running. So we operate in our fleshly mind, in our emotions, in our thinking, and it drives our body. Does that make sense? You getting that? So that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, look, You are followers of Christ. 
Here's the problem. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, just like that dormant seed, God says what? Wake up. Come on. Let's go. Let's be alive. And all of a sudden, that top gear drops down and engages. So now the Spirit is that which is informing the mind and the thoughts and the emotions and regulating the body. That's how that's supposed to work. And Paul is saying, your top gears drop down, church, but you're not operating like it. You still are operating out of that middle and lower gears. You're worldly, you're carnal, you're acting in the way of the flesh. You have forgotten that the Spirit of God has engaged you. Does that make sense? Give me an amen if you know what I'm talking about now. That is tripart anthropology in simplicity. Aren't you glad? All right, because I can make that very complicated. And all God's people said, yes, I, I know you could, Dan. All right, keep it, keep it simple, stupid, kiss. Yes, that's how that works. So what I want you to see is that Paul is trying to get after a lack of understanding that, look, you don't need to operate this way. There's a, there's a better way. There's a different way. There's a more realistic way that you need to understand about how to do life within the body of Jesus himself. What was the evidence that these folks were worldly or carnal or fleshly? I want you to look with me at verse 3. You are still worldly. There's the matter of fact statement for since there are two things, what are they, that's going on in the church? Jealousy and quarreling among you. You are not, are you not worldly? There's the evidence. That means those two things shouldn't be a part of your Christian life. Are you not acting like mere humans? And I'm, I'm going to give you the, the bracketing, understanding that. Are you not acting like unregenerate people? I know that's a big word, but unregenerate means what? You're not, you're not born again. To generate means to bring, bring life about or to have life in it. Are, are you not acting like your spirit drive isn't engaged? Isn't that how you're acting? The two things that Paul brings out are jealousy and quarreling. Look with me at verse 4. He gives us the example that he sees in the church. For one says, well, I follow Paul. And another says, well, I don't follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Same statement. Are you not mere human beings? Are you not unregenerate people? You see, that's how dead spiritual people act. Because they are dead spiritually, they only have fleshly, sinful ways of responding. And once again, you're not remembering that you're redeemed spiritually. You should be above this. Engage the spirit. Figure out how to navigate this in a, in a new and different way. Early in the letter, Paul says that they were even dragging Peter and Jesus into this argument. In chapter 1, if you go back and read through the chapter, in that particular passage, that's where that whole argument started. Some people say, well, I follow Peter. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow any of the other apostles. And then the, the best one-up of them all was somebody that said, oh, yeah? Well, I follow Jesus. How about that? He wins. Actually, nobody wins because that was the issue. Why were they even doing that in the first place? Jealousy is an emotion of insecurity and value. 
It breeds suspicion and mistrust, a question of motives. It divides the body into the ins and the outs, into the cool and the uncool. It divides the upper class from the lower class, which is exactly what Paul's going to address that church in in 1 Corinthians 11 with communion, by the way. The rich people and the poor people, those who have and those who don't. It internally says, I'm going to make myself a person of value. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to name drop. Know anybody like that? Well, I studied under. Well, I followed. Well, I, I'm related to. Well, I, there, there's a way of, I, I don't feel valued in myself, so I'm going to hitch my wagon to another horse, and hopefully that'll get me up so that other people will think highly of me or value me. Why? Because I don't feel that way. I don't feel valued, and I'm jealous of what everybody else has. I envy That's what was going on in the church. Paul answered them very, very matter-of-factly. You need to grow up. You need to stop being children. Stop fighting over needless, non-eternal things. You need to see others in a spiritual way, in a proper perspective. We're all followers of Jesus, and all God's people said. Absolutely we are. And we derive our value from being made in the image of God and should feel privileged to be part of the family of God with grace gifts, gifts that are undeserved to us, given to us from God. Someone has said that the ground is always level at the cross. Have you ever heard that before? doesn't matter who you are. Everybody has to get on their knees and look up. That's humility. And that's what the church at Corinth needed. There are no high levels, no low levels. Everyone needs to submit and receive the sacrifice of Jesus. Look with me at verse 5. What, after all, Paul is saying, is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're only what, church? They're just servants through whom um, you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Apollos, Peter, James, John were all just servants of the Most High God assigned to a particular divine task. We're just men who are trying to walk in obedience to the call of God on our lives. So please stop elevating us to places that we don't want to be and stop being divisive in the process. This doesn't create a church that God intended Follow Jesus, love each other, support each other, build each other up and encourage each other. Don't be divisive. Don't be divisive. By the way, just a, a, an added point to my little announcement on finding the lost sheep. We're not looking to, to guilt or shame or condemn. Our whole objective of looking at folks who aren't here is to say, we love you. We miss you. We need you to be a part of the body of Christ. Does that make sense? That's what we're trying to communicate. We value you, and when you're not here, we miss you. That's what this church should have been doing. They, they weren't. Let's use some garden analogy in verses 6 and 7. Paul says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but guess what? God has been making it grow. 
So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only who, church? Only God who makes things grow. Paul said, I evangelized and I shared Jesus with you and you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That was my part. God used me to do that. And then he brought Apollos in, who was an amazing teacher of the scriptures. And Apollos came in and he discipled you and he got you up to speed. Hasn't gotten you all the way there yet. But none of our efforts would have mattered if God was not the one bringing life and health to you. You see, it's all about God. It's all about God. It's nothing to do with us. He's the one that makes the kingdom grow. His spirit is the one who transforms the heart to receive the truth about Jesus. He's the one who brings new birth to us. He's the one who grants us the power and the gifts to do the divine things that we do. It's all about God. Deb and I used to put out a, a huge garden when I farmed. I would go out and till the ground up. I would level it out. I would plan out where I would want things to go. I'd plant a few marigolds and other bug repellent plants strategically around things. I would string out my rows so that they were straight or measure out the mounds so that the plants would have enough space to grow. And then I would water it and I'd hoe it and I'd keep the weeds out. I'd do everything humanly possible to get a good crop, but I couldn't do something. I couldn't make it grow. Without God, without God, nothing becomes what it needs to be. It doesn't mean all that stuff's not important, but don't glorify the farmer because he has a good crop. Thank God. Does that make sense? Thank God that he's the one that brings the increase. And I couldn't do something else. I couldn't make the sun come out. And there are fields on our, our plantation that didn't have irrigation. I couldn't do something else. I couldn't water it. Do you see how dependent we are on God? Now translate that into every part of your life. Translate that into what you do for a living. Translate that into seeing how God, without God, you couldn't do what you do. God has given every single one of you gifts and abilities. He's given you bents so that your career path is here while others are here. He gives you the, the intellect. He gives you the wisdom to do your job well or he gives you discernment to select the right job or to get into the right schools. At the end of the day, when you get your diploma and you get your good job and, and you're prosperous as far as the world goes, um, the thing you need to be reminded of and that Deuteronomy 8, if you want to note that and read that today, helps us to understand is this. When you become rich and prosperous, when you have all that your hearts desire, don't forget God because he's the one that gave it to you. Don't lift up the farmer. He did his part. Don't lift up the doctor or the nurse, or the teacher, or the whatever. 
If something has blessed you, certainly give thanks to the person that God used. I'm not saying that. But first and foremost, give thanks to your Father in heaven through all good things come. That's the point. That's what Paul is trying to help us to understand. God has placed within every single one of us this amazing opportunity to reproduce and to provide things that we would beyond our imagination, not be able to even think of. Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, and Paul saw that a man had faith to be healed. He was lame, and on the authority of Jesus, he commanded the man to stand to his feet, and miraculously, this man did. And all the people rose up and shouted, and they called Paul and Barnabas. They said, the gods have come down to us. And they called Barnabas Zeus, and they called Paul Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas did what? (gasps) Stop it! We're just men like you are. Is that amazing? That would have been very, very easy to go. Yeah, you're, (laughs) yes, uh, I know, thank you, yeah. I'll be here back on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Uh, It would have been very, very easy if the spirit wasn't engaged to the mind and the body because the flesh loves praise. The flesh loves to be boisted up, to be be brought up, to be puffed up. Is that not true? But because the spirit was engaged with Paul and Barnabas, they immediately saw the idolatry in that and they pleaded with these people, please don't put that on us. Praise God who brought this miracle to this man. Praise Jesus Christ. That was Paul's heart. It was Barnabas' heart. The point I want to talk to you about just briefly is, you know, Pastor Joel and I, the elders, we can do everything imaginable to get the church healthy, to position it for growth, both numerically and spiritually. But in the end, we're simply servants trying to do what God has called us to do. There is only one person that can grow a church. And who is it? God. Joel and I do our part. The elders do their part. The deacons and the trustees and all those who try to do the work of our our master as servants. We do our best to serve you and to minister to you. But in the end, God is the one that brings the increase, not us. I can't make the sun shine. I can't make the water come down from the heavens. I can't snap my fingers. I can't do this and say, wake up. I can't do that. Does that make sense? Don't say amen to that, by the way, because oftentimes we put a whole lot of undue burden on pastors and elders to do just that. What's your job, Pastor Dan? Your job is to grow the church. It's to bring new people in. It's to, uh, wait a minute, that isn't my job. My job is to be faithful to what God has called me to do, which is to preach and teach the word of God to love broken people, to make sure the sheep are as best cared for as I possibly can care for them. But in the end, I don't grow the church. Only God can do that. And all God's people said, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, wonderful truth. But somewhere it gets lost in in the conversation. And it makes it difficult for us to shepherd and to pastor with that that burden upon us. Look with me, please, at eight. I don't want you to see that our work is not 
appreciate it. It says, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be what, church? They'll be rewarded to their own labor. It's not like Paul is saying what I did and what Apollos did was nothing, that God does it all. No, God uses us. It's the privilege we have of serving God, not only in vocational ministry, but in everyday ministry that you have as well. You're going to be rewarded on how you use the gifts that God has given to you and the labor, the, the fruit that comes out of your labor. You'll be rewarded for that. It's just making sure that we've got a proper perspective on that God is the one that brings the increase. Look with me, please, at verse 9. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Another farm language there. We are the farmers. You're the field. We do our best to, to make sure the seed is in the soil, that, that it has all of the nutrients it needs, that it's hoed, that the weeds stay away. That's our job. That's what God has called us to do as pastors and elders. You have your part as well. So here's the end of the matter. We all have a place within the body of Christ as followers of Jesus. We have value. We have opportunity to contribute to the work of the kingdom. So we have to focus and and ask the Lord what he would have us to do and not worry about what God has asked someone else to do. We call that ministry envy, by the way. Pastors are horrible at this. You know, when, when we get together as, uh, as, uh, as couples, you know, we're, we're kind of meandering around. You know, what we say as guys is we don't say, so uh, how many children do you have? No, that's a woman's question. The guys, we all ask what question first, men, when we say each other? What do you do? See, that's, that's a worldly value system. Is What do you spend your time on? How do you make a living? That's where that is. Pastors, when we get together, guess what our first question normally is? So, uh, how, uh, yeah, how, how big is your church? Uh, yeah, mine's, a, mine's a thousand Please don't visit because I only have 20, but right for today, it's going to be a 1,000. Some, for some reason, we need to make ourselves feel better because we have more people in the church because numbers equate with success, and all God's people said, no. You can have 15,000 people in your church and they're all dead. They're there to be entertained and you can go to a little storefront church that has 20 people, at, people in it. And oh my gosh, are you going to find the Holy Spirit show up in that place? Whew. Numbers don't mean anything. That's not the way we measure things. We measure things by are people growing deeper in their faith in Jesus Christ? Do they love each other? Do they love God? Do they love the lost? That's what matters. That's what we have. Certainly, I would love the whole church to be filled up with people. Living people. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. Not dead people. Although I would like dead people to show up so that they can be alive. That's, uh... oh, goodness sakes. Church, we all collectively need to say we have a divine job. We all need to be encouraged to work in partnership, but all the glory and all the praise and all the expected increase comes from God. 
So our prayer today is, Father, bring the increase and let us be faithful in doing our part to bring it to pass. And as you bring us here each Sunday, let us exalt the only person or persons that are responsible for that increase. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. And we praise you, Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, please, can we close our prayer together? Father, we love you. Thank you 